Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with David Pott, Sunbreak Wine and Cider. We're here at Nicholson Library on Linfield University campus, August 25th, 2020. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's my honor. Thank you. Uh, first question for you, uh, as you probably know, is why wine? Why wine? Well, I, I grew up in a French family. I was actually born in France and um, you know, wine was, was always uh, there at, uh, for special occasions, especially for, for family reunions. And so just growing up in that culture, um, uh, you know, it was always something I gravitated towards as I became a, a young adult and, and more aware. Um, and I've, I've had a lot of influences in my life that just kind of, uh, you know, would come in periodically uh, just to reinforce uh, the value of great wine with great food. Um, so certainly, you know, it was always associated uh, for me with uh, family and friends and get-togethers, but always around food as well. And as my wife and I got more interested in, in uh, culinary arts um, and, and great food, uh, we got more and more interested in great wine as well. Um, I had an uncle who was a collector. Uh, so my family, my French family, is from the Rhone Valley and from the Riviera. Uh, when we immigrated to the United States, I was four years old. Uh, my dad was in graduate school, and we ended up staying and getting a permanent residency, and I became a citizen uh, later on uh, in graduate school. Uh, but my dad was a professor at a uh, university, and every summer we'd go back and spend the summer on the family farm in the Rhone Valley. And there's a little bit of a history of winemaking in my uh, family. We have a, uh, my great uncle still lives on my great grandfather's property, which was a, a winery for the local chateau in the Ardèche. And so it was always there as a, you know, just kind of a, a touchstone. Mm -hmm. um, and I had an uncle who was a big collector, um, and his wife, Mari Paul, is, is on one of my wine labels. Um, and so Pinot Noir was uh, his favorite uh, to collect. And so right when Elizabeth and I uh, started to appreciate wine, we were introduced to just amazing uh, Pinot Noirs from Burgundy. And they also like to collect champagne, and so sparkling and champagne, and, and very old vintages, and amazing bottles that would come out with no labels and, and such. Um, and so, you know, right from an early age, uh, we, we really got into that. Um, so I, I also make Heritage Cider, and the Heritage Cider is a more recent story. Um, it it's really relates to the fact that uh, when we moved from Portland about five years ago, we bought some property uh, north of Corvallis, a beautiful uh, rural property, which we called Sunbreak Gardens, and, and kind of got our, our wine name from that. Um, and we had some, some huge apple trees, and our neighbors had huge apple trees. And I was interested in sparkling. I was studying winemaking. And, 
And so we started to play around with making cider and then really started to explore what cider is, and cider is a form of winemaking, really. Um, there's a hashtag out there, cider is wine. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but heritage ciders, you know, these are uh, traditional ciders like you would see in Normandy and in the United Kingdom and the Basque country and Spain and, and all around Europe. Um, and, you know, these are dry ciders without any adjuncts and other fruit flavors added, mm -hmm. so so we're really trying to make a, like a very wine-like cider that is uh, can be aged, is even better with age. Um, so the the heritage cider story came on later in my life. I really had not grown up uh, drinking cider mm -hmm. uh, before we started making it. So it's been more of a recent journey on the cider side, but fun, mm -hmm. fun. So. So as you kind of are developing this this taste for wine, this interest in wine, tell me about at what point getting into it as a as a career becomes something you start thinking about, and when that does, what what is your first step? Yeah, so I had a, a 25 year career with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I was really passionate, still am, very passionate about conservation, fish and wildlife conservation in particular. And uh, just throughout those years, as, as uh, my wife and I, um, you know, kind of transitioned into early career and having a little bit more, um, you know, available income, exploring wine, uh, when we would go back to France to visit family, um, it was very convenient for us to fly into Paris and stop in Burgundy and have a couple days on our own and then drive down and then do all the family visit. It was just a, a nice little entry point for my wife to get her uh, language skills back up, her ear. Uh, and then it became kind of a tradition for us on the way out too, after family visits, on the way back to Paris, we would stop there. Um, and we got to, um, we, in our, uh, I'd say like our third visit, we found a uh, winery, a domaine, in the Haute Côte de Nuit that had a bed and breakfast on the farm, uh, you know, at the vineyard, at the winery. Uh, so the kids ran the the B&B &B, um, hospitality. The dad was the uh, vigneron, you know, the, the, the winemaker and the vineyard manager. And the granddad had been the uh, same and he was still around. So we got to know them very well and just visited them, you know, four or five times. and. I think that planted a you know a little bit of a seed, definitely a very strong interest in not just appreciating uh, great wine, but also how it's made and 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 the the vineyard side. Mm -hmm. and, and we'd have mm -hmm. great wine tastings at at their domain, and and uh, he was quite funny and and just loved to talk. But one of the key things I, I remember is um, his pride in not needing a lot of analogy, uh, lab work, and just being in touch with his wines, you know, visually and, and through sound, uh, in terms of where they were and how safe they were. Um, and another thing that struck me too was he, he didn't have an underground cellar, so, and we would visit in the summer, um, and he always regretted that he didn't have a cool cellar. Mm -hmm and that he perhaps needed to sulfite his wines pretty heavily. And so that kind of stuck with me over the years and has informed my philosophy. 
Um, but later on, we were living in Portland. We moved to Portland in 1995. And um, when we worked in and lived in Washington, D.C., uh, Calvert Woodley was a great wine shop. And um, Burgundy, you know, uh, wines were featured. And, and we really got to explore Burgundy. But when we came out to Oregon, uh, you know, I, I just didn't have a great appreciation in the early 90s for Oregon wines, and we moved out here and we found out well, this is the land of Pinot and Chardonnay. <laughs> we were just in heaven. And the climate is very similar to what I, I remembered uh, my summers in the Rhone Valley, very Mediterranean climate. And uh, so we just fell in love and just started exploring all the wineries uh, out, out in Oregon. Um, what really started to pique my interest in the wine uh, and vineyard side, um, we, we decided to, uh, with some friends, buy uh, a country property in the Columbia Gorge, just east of uh, Mount Adams. And uh, through friends, we met uh, some dear friends of ours who, who we've been in touch now for um, more than 20 years. Uh, Thomas and Marlene Woodward have a beautiful vineyard uh, called Oak Ridge. Uh, high elevation uh, above uh, White Salmon in Houston. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so we, we got to know the whole vineyard side and the cycle and helping them out occasionally and house-sitting for them and reading all of their, their, their books and their periodicals on, on viticulture. Mm -hmm. uh, so then th that, that really did uh, get me thinking about if I ever were to be able to retire early uh, or a second career as a um, winemaker and vineyard owner um, and kind of fast forward you know in the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, there were some budget issues in the second Obama administration uh, cycle with Congress and budget cutbacks and, and uh, at the agency they were offering early retirements for anyone over 50. So at 52, I had the, the opportunity to retire early with a little bit of a pension and healthcare and, and all these things. And um, so we started looking for vineyard properties in the gorge. Um, we actually made a couple of offers on vineyard property. And so I, my mindset was really strongly rooted in uh, managing a vineyard and making wines. But as we started to uh, explore the financial aspects of, of that, um, it kind of became clear to me that I would either do one or the other. It would be hard to do both, given our, our finances and not wanting to take out huge loans or get investors. Mm -hmm. So um, at the same time, I, I had volunteered uh, and started exploring all the urban wineries in Portland while we lived there. And I volunteered uh, with a, a small winery called Clay Pigeon and Michael Claypool, uh, uh, we, we would frequent the restaurant with Sasha and Michael and got to know them very well. And um, we happened to have a government shutdown, I think it was in 2013, and it was right during harvest. It was like three weeks off right during harvest. <laughs> and so I volunteered and I helped them out uh, a little bit, a lot, I don't know, I can't, it's hard to remember, but it certainly made a big impact on me that mm -hmm this seemed a lot even more fun and more rewarding than maybe on the vineyard side. Uh, and it could be done at a small scale too. That kind of opened my eyes too, that you didn't have to start um, 
or even you know have a, a, a super large winery to be making very uh, high-end quality wines. Mm -hmm. And Michael was just so gracious and put up with all my little questions and. Uh, you know, you start at the bottom, you know, if you don't enjoy cleaning tanks, that's how you start. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just going through all those uh, process, that, you know, just learning how to use the equipment and helping with harvest. Um, that, that, that really got me going then. And, and when we did have that ability to transition into a second career, then my mind was, was pretty well set. And we started to look more broadly for properties because we weren't at that point tied into you know finding a vineyard property uh, we could find any property and then learn winemaking and, and work in the winemaking uh, side of it and become a winemaker so so that's it's kind of a long you know series of, of evolution um, of, of influences mm -hmm. that that influenced me um, you know one little step at a time um, and then you know there's so many others as I uh, then took the plunge. Uh, so many great mentors, mm -hmm. and uh, talk about those a little, a little bit mm -hmm. too. Last mm -hmm. five years, last five vintages that I've been able to uh, to participate in. So, so now before you started your brand, you you mentioned Michael Claypool, obviously, uh, but yeah. other other people you worked with as well. Tell me about kind of the experience of kind of seeing different different operations and different ways to do what you wanted to do. Well, we loved Brooks. We were members at Brooks. Um, we loved Christum. Um, you know, we obviously had had visited Burgundy many times, um, and uh, in that process too, my nephew uh, was interested. He was uh, in wine sales in Atlanta, and he was interested in coming out and potentially working in in the wine industry here in Oregon. So he came out for a visit and through Thomas and Marlene, Oak Ridge Vineyard, we went around and met all the winemakers of the Columbia Gorge uh, and really got to know several of them. And uh, Ben ended up moving out here and working for uh, a couple of different wineries in the Columbia Gorge and then starting his own label. So that was a nice transition. So right when I was uh, getting started in winemaking, and taking classes at Chemeketa, uh, doing harvest internships. Uh, then Ben started Milan Wines, and I got to work uh, with him, which was a great joy, um, and learn what he, he had learned from uh, Nate at Hiu uh, Vineyard um, and others that he had worked with uh, in more of a natural winemaking style. Um, and so that was a big influence on me after doing uh, I did harvest internships with Anderson family uh, wines, and that was both in the vineyard and in the cellar, which mm -hmm. was really nice to mm -hmm. see both sides of that. Um, and then uh, I started working in the tasting room at Lumos, which I really recommend for anyone starting in the winemaking business. To see the client side and, and have that client interaction. Um, and to work in a tasting room for four years with Lumos Wines, just great Pinot Noirs, but they, we, we were able to serve six different Pinot Noirs from Temperance Hill uh, and five different white wines. And so you get to see a great number of styles and how people respond to the different styles of Pinot Noir that we were serving, the different types of white wines. Mm -hmm. 
And also sticking with it for four years and seeing how those, wall, the, those wines evolve, mm -hmm. especially the, the red wines, you know, when you serve them uh, for the club release and then serve them in the tasting room the next year mm -hmm. and then uh, follow-up events the following year and really seeing the evolution and how things change, especially in those first three years. Uh, is, is really valuable as, as uh, someone who's learning uh, along the way. And so I signed up to do um, an internship with Lumos and, you know, small winery. And so I was expecting something, you know, small, just like Anderson family, you know, a couple weeks of really intense work. Um, uh, and I showed up at the winery and looked around and just saw this huge uh, facility and, and then I was told that it was really a combined staff of like three full-time cellar hands and we were going to process wine for Dominio 4, Native Flora, Lumos, and, and three other wineries. And so I hadn't quite realized I'd signed up for, you know, 12-hour days for uh, nonstop for four weeks and then we got a day off for the following three weeks and then we had weekends off after that and then you know it was one of those really intense but it, but it was really great because uh, you know what an experience to have a seller uh, internship and work with five different winemakers and seeing how they handle uh, winemaking differently mm -hmm. and all the fermentations going on and some do it a little bit differently and, and all the different choices and then you know so you're studying in class at the same time and then you're seeing all these winemakers that have taken all these different paths and different choices and then I work with my nephew and he's like 100% natural winemaking and, and no, no machinery if possible so no destemming and seeing how those wines turn out um, so that's a really fascinating part, I think, about being a winemaker mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, you, you know I, I really like working with a single vineyard as much as I can, so I can really work hard at expressing the terroir the, or the site um, as best I can through the Pinot Noir. Um, but then you start to think about the, the many, many decisions as a winemaker uh, you have in influencing the style of that wine that comes from that winery mm -hmm. and which style best represents that vineyard mm -hmm. um, or do you like different styles from that same vineyard and so that that really fueled my curiosity and my passion even further to um, to really find one vineyard and kind of stick with it mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know as, as Providence would have it, you know, you just have these, these little forks in the road that, that come up. Um, a friend of a friend had a vineyard right next to Brooks. And uh, we had been going up to Brooks as club members forever, my wife and I. And right across the street from the Brooks estate, um, a fellow by the name of Mark Rose had uh, started a vineyard there. And he was a friend of a friend, and his vineyard was just kind of, uh, was young and, and growing. He hadn't sold all his grapes in 2017, and he had a lot of grapes left over. And so our, our friends, uh, Bart and Dale, uh, introduced us to Mark, and we all went, we, we went, Mark and I went out and picked uh, from, from the vineyard, 
and uh, did some home wines in his garage and had enough to do three barrels. So it was you know, a serious enough attempt. And, um, and we did a little bit of both. We did some whole cluster and destemming and, and you know, free run versus barrel versus press and how we liked and all of those little things. Um, and, uh, and then the following year, uh, Jessica Cortell became a co-owner of that vineyard. So it's called Cortell Rose. Mm. And she's a, just a fabulous vineyard manager. Um, she, she manages organically. Um, she has a, another vineyard that she owns, Carlisle, and she manages some of the top, top-end vineyards in the valley, uh, Seven Springs, uh, Antica Terra, Medici, uh, just a whole bunch of others. Uh, so once she came on board, it, it, the light bulb came on for me. It was like, you know, there's, there are grapes available at this, this vineyard, and it's probably not going to last too long. <laughs> and if I don't jump in right now, um, you know, I have the potential of a, of a pretty strong allocation from this vineyard because I know one of the owners. Um, and so I did. In 2018, I just kind of jumped in. And as luck would have it, uh, Ben uh, was looking for winery space and was having trouble finding something in the Columbia Gorge. Mm -hmm. And we ended up finding, for him, uh, some, a custom crush facility, which really allows the winemakers to, 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 to be involved uh, as well, which is really uh, kind of what we were looking for. And it happened to be the old Brooks Winery, where I used to go you know, pick up my wine and talk to the winemakers and get the tours. And so I'm just kind of pinching myself, like this is just seems surreal. I'm just doing this full circle of, you know, 20 years ago, I used to be a club member and now I'll be making wine in this facility. And um, John Grishow had managed it and he, he was moving to a larger facility and Vincent Fricci, Vincent Wine Company is now the manager of that facility. And he's just a great guy and a great mentor and, and he's really um, given me the confidence to, to really get started and to expand a little bit and, um, and uh, just a, a great, you know, welcoming kind of cooperative spirit at that winery and, and there are uh, several others, Championship Bottle and now Libertine, Alex with Libertine is coming on board. So it's just going to be a great, great team. Um, and so it's a fun place to be. You're, um, you're not in a, like an urban winery setting. You're up there with the vineyards. It's very inspiring and the view of the Cascades. So it's fun. And, and for me, you know, it's just so, it's, it's just so nice because um, every time I go to the winery, you know, you know, every couple of weeks at Top Barrels or for whatever reason, I, I drive right by the vineyard and I get to stop and, and visit the vineyard and really feel a little bit more connected to the vineyard work and uh, talking with Jessica about what's what's going on and, and what what some of the challenges are that particular year and how the vintage is coming along. Uh, so everything just kind of fell into place um, and it just felt like it was meant to be. So then, um, you know, the question was, you know, can I make some really good wine? So, <laughs> so that's the trick, you know. So. Well, and my, my first vintage is out, and so far, um, people love it, so that's good, so that's good, so. <laughs> Excellent. Come back to that in just a second. I'm, I'm curious about something else. You mentioned 
you're kind of doing the, you go back, you go to school, you're doing internships around, you're kind of yeah. finding things to do. Usually a young person's game. I'm, I'm kind of curious about doing that as a second career and trying to keep up with uh, the people who are usually doing that exact same thing at maybe a little bit younger than you. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting. I mean, I really enjoyed it and the camaraderie and everyone was super welcoming and I, you know, I could tell when I first showed up for that first Harvard, uh, you know, my first internship interview, I, I remember Cliff Anderson, you know, really looking at me and say, okay, you're, you're kind of a former executive desk job guy. Are you really going to be up to the physical labor? And I, I said, well, yeah, of course, you know, I, you know, I, I'm fit. I bike to work every day. Uh, I grew up on a farm and I, I, I grew up picking peaches all summer long and moving irrigation ditches. And then he said, oh, you grew up on a farm. You're hired. <laughs> you know exactly what's, what this is about. <laughs> so the, you know, the, being on the family farm, it, it is true. You know, it, it, uh, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I did want that, that kind of career executive uh, job and role in life for quite a while. But after, after sitting at a desk for, for a while, that kind of starts to lose its appeal and you're ready to do something more physical. And, um, and then just the intellectual stimulus of, of learning a new craft and the whole winemaking side and everything that goes into it. Um, and it was the same thing at Lumos, you know, all the young guys, they were like, oh, this guy, he's, he's well, the, my, my benefit there was that, um, see, the younger guys, after a 12-hour day, they would, they would go socialize at the bars and maybe uh, not sleep as much as me. And uh, so, <laughs> not to name names, but <laughs> I would show up the next day to work and be all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed <laughs> and, and able to put in another 12 hours of hard labor. Um, but I think also they had a little pity on me, so I, I got to be the, the forklift operator, which was very fun, you know, it's like bumper cars, you know, it goes <laughs> back to your childhood, you know, this is like, this is so much fun. So, so that was a really nice skill to pick up too, is to, you know, have uh, a couple years of uh, pretty, in, you know, a, a lot of forklift work, uh, many, many hours of forklifts. So I feel very comfortable with that kind of equipment. Um, so that's a great benefit to have that. But, but you know, overall, everyone was super, you know, super, it's just true everywhere you, you know, most people you meet in the Oregon wine industry are just uh, very open, very willing to share uh, their knowledge and their expertise and, and open to others um, uh, entering the field. Mm -hmm. And uh, I certainly found that to be the case, you know, very, I ask a lot of questions whenever I'm in a cellar, and everyone was just super, super helpful all along the way. Mm -hmm. so. so you had kind of a simultaneous um, book learning, on-the-job learning, kind of going yeah. at the same time. I'm curious about, along the way, sort of as you're thinking about, when I do this on my own, this is what I want to do. Tell me about kind of developing your philosophy, developing the style you want to, you want to use, or the... Uh, the wine you want to produce and, and kind of how you went about creating that philosophy from all the disparate parts. Yeah, you know, uh, I initially was uh, really more of a fan of, of de-stemmed uh, Pinot Noir and a little bit lighter style. Um, but as I worked in the tasting room and worked with my nephew with Whole Cluster, I became more and more intrigued with um, 
you know, just the added complexity um, that you get with that and a little bit lighter fruitiness. There's a little bit of carbonic maceration that occurs. Um, it can be tricky. Uh, so there's some challenges with 100% uh, whole cluster. Mm -hmm. And um, and then at IPNC, I, I volunteered at IPNC for three years and, and got to uh, really spent a little bit of time talking to some of the vignerons from, from France about their use of whole cluster, mm -hmm. and then Christum here, and Goodfellow, and White Rose, and some of the great Oregon wineries that really focus on whole cluster. Mm -hmm. And again, my nephew at Milan Wines, uh, and I think certainly high, he learned that from High U um, in Columbia Gorge. Um, and so I became more and more fascinated by it. And then, you know, the kind of the fabled wines from Burgundy, from Romanée Conti and Dujac, um, almost exclusively whole cluster, you know, through their history. Uh, and really, if you think about whole cluster Pinot Noir, uh, that was the traditional way, you know, foot tread, no, you know, there, there weren't machines, there were no destemmers before 19, 60s maybe, and in the 60s and the 70s, the destemmers were were very crude and very harsh. Um, and so, you know, destemming is actually a very recent uh, trend in in Pinot Noir winemaking. Um, so that's that's been a big part of what I do. Uh, I I now do half destemmed and half half of the fermentations are 100% destemmed, half are 100% whole cluster. And I make three different styles of Pinot. So the Colette will be 100% destem Pinot. The Mari Paul will have 50-50. So it'll be a blend of the barrels from, from each of those fermentation types. And then the Ariane Pinot Noir is gonna be 100% uh, whole cluster. And um, what I do is I, I invite my clients to really explore all three. Uh, as an expression of that vineyard and three different styles uh, from one vineyard. And which do you prefer? And uh, they're, they're all very different from each other, um, but everyone has their fans. Uh, I certainly like all three for what they bring. Um, and so I, I really thought initially I would do all three styles and eventually pick a favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, but based on the feedback and based on my kind of like now two or three years of exploring this, I really enjoy uh, having the diversity of all three styles. So a little bit lighter, more fruit forward, um, to the more, um, you know, more tannin, it'd be more of a vin de garde, so more, more of a wine that's going to maybe age a little bit um, more, a little bit more structure. Mm -hmm. And then the one that's a blend of, of uh, the two. Mm -hmm. Uh, and exploring all three of those styles. Uh, the, the other, the second other big winemaking decision for me, um, when I was uh, making a lot of wines at home, um, we didn't find the need to use sulfites, added sulfites, because uh, you know we weren't in a winery setting, so everything was pretty clean. Um, no spoilage organisms or or you know yeast and bacteria that can you know, kind of go out of control and, and cause, you know, either a, a very acidic wines or, or maybe some off-putting odors with brett and a lot mm -hmm. of other associated mm -hmm. uh, organisms. And as I started to, to really enjoy those with uh, some of our friends, um, and they, 
they really commented on the lack of sulfites in the red wine uh, for them being more enjoyable and, and um, having not really an allergic reaction to sulfites, but maybe feeling better the next morning with wines without sulfites. And so there's you know a little bit of a health or perceived health aspect. Um, but certainly it seemed to me that the wines would always present um, much more fruity fruitiness right off the bat, especially right after bottling. You know, we don't have to, we don't sulfite at bottling, and so there's no real bottle shock that occurs, and you can start enjoying these wines, um, and they just open up and are really alive and really open up nicely right at an early age. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a lot of tastings I've done in Burgundy, uh, a lot of sulfur, uh, a lot of tannins, and you do the tasting at the wineries and they'll tell you right off the bat, you know, you have set this aside for two or three years, it's not very drinkable right now, it's a little harsh, and, and you know, that, you know, and, and just working in a tasting room and talking with clients, you know, no one wants, no one can sell their wines very well, not very many people have a cellar mm -hmm. and, and have the ability to keep wines for two or three years. So I think uh, the reality too is, is that as, as you present wine to people uh, in today's world, it, it really needs to be drinkable, you know, I think right, mm -hmm. right off the bat mm -hmm. and it needs to present nicely. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly in a restaurant environment, if you think about, you know, the, the Metro D or, or the, your, your waiter or sommelier opens a bottle and presents the wine to you right away without decanting, without aeration, um, to maybe reduce the sulfites or other things that might be going on. So I, I certainly think it's an advantage that way to, to, to be able to make a wine that, that is a little um, more lively mm -hmm. and fresh uh, and shows great fruit and complexity without the sulfites. So that's been a, a tremendous challenge, uh, you know, to, to solve that, those, um, those issues of winemaking without sulfites mm -hmm. uh, along the way. And there's some trade-offs uh, for all the different uh, decisions we make in the winery. Um, but I, I feel like the no sulfites is, is, a, is a worthy trade-off. And, and I take several steps to make sure the wines are are, are clean, uh, present really nicely, um, uh, don't suffer from oxidation, because so the sulfites do two things, you know, they prevent, help prevent premature oxidation, uh, as well as what we call spoilage organisms, or organisms that can cause some, you know, issues with your wine. Um, so learning how to, to really handle um, you know, make sure we don't have premature oxidation and the wines are clean uh, as well. Uh, so there's several steps we, we take along the way to, to ensure that that happens. Mm -hmm. So we get a really, you know, beautiful wine with great complexity and length um, and uh, clean but, but natural in a sense of not having sulfites. And uh, for me, the, the two most important parts of being a natural wine are the how the grapes are grown, so organic practices, so you get some diversity of uh, yeast and cultures, you know, that, that might occur uh, in the vineyard that you can bring into the winery. Um, and then uh, no sulfites added at the winery. 
Um, but I do take some other steps that would take me out of the natural wine making category to uh, to make to make my wines what they are. So there we have a little bit of a foot in both worlds there. So. Yeah. You talked about um, presenting your wines. I'm, I'm curious about after after a lot of buildup, when you actually do go to present something to to yeah. a customer, to a to a psalm, to a restaurant. Tell me about that kind of the process of that and, and, and the feeling of presenting a wine that you've made to someone in that way. Yeah, it's it's a great feeling to be selling your your own wines and talking about your own wines after years of um, helping others sell their wines, uh, which I loved doing um, because you can really tell the full story and and really answer all the questions along the way and talk about your philosophy and, and tell the whole story. But on the downside, you, you're also very aware of any shortcomings <laughs> that you might have perceived. And so you have to, you have to play this, um, this fine line because, you know, I feel like I know my wines so well and my ciders so well that, um, you know, I feel like, okay, next year I can do a little bit better by doing this. And so, because you're always trying to improve, and you always want your, 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 you always have this idea that your next vintage is going to be your best vintage, and there's always something you can improve upon. So, so you, you do have to kind of relax a little bit and let the wines present themselves and have that natural conversation with either a client or a wine buyer at the retail, and 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 let them come to a little bit of their own conclusions and help guide that discussion mm -hmm. and um, there are three types of folks out there who are wine enthusiasts and actually most winemakers will be shocked to know that maybe 20 percent are interested in winemaking techniques <laughs> most are interested in in understanding and, and enjoying the wine and the flavors and the pairings with food and um, the social aspects of, of a wine that can be enjoyed by, um, you know, buying and enjoying a wine that others are going to enjoy because you, you know, there, there are a whole, a whole group of folks that the, you know, the, the social aspect of wine drinking is the most important for them. And they certainly want to bring home wines that at the family table everyone's going to enjoy. Uh, so maybe they're not as interested in, in, shall we say, like difficult wines or, or esoteric wines mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as much as uh, some other connoisseurs which are more interested in food pairings and they want, you know, uh, a real diversity in palate and, and they are interested in a, in a, in a full panoply of, of different styles of wine because um, they understand how those nuances can really help flavors, you know, with different foods. Uh, and then connoisseurs, you know, collectors, they, they, and wine scores in general, you know, from wine writers, uh, part of the score, a big chunk of the score is the ageability of the wine. Mm -hmm. And they're in, very interested in the ageability of the wine. So, so you have three very different audiences. And, um, and, and so, so I, I also thought that you know making three different styles of Pinot and three different styles of heritage cider would appeal. You know it, they're really kind of designed in a way by accident, but it nicely fits into this narrative of you know there are different 
types of wine enthusiasts mm -hmm. for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I was, uh, you know, really pleased to see the reception of my 2018 uh, release, um, which was released, you know, just right during the pandemic. But people really enthusiastic for one or the other Pinot Noir and selling out of the, the D-Stem, the Colette, very quickly. And if you think about it, that's the D-Stem, that's the one that's uh, more approachable in its youth. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, you know, people, uh, they would buy a couple bottles and then they would come back for four cases. I was just <laughs> shocked, you know, pleasingly shocked, which was great. Mm -hmm. so, so it sold out very, very quickly, uh, which was really nice. Because, uh, we produced uh, 300 cases in the 2018 vintage. And um, I had my, you know, when we were barrel tasting, I was getting really good feedback from winemakers and connoisseurs and enthusiasts. And so I, I just took the plunge and decided to double production in 2019, all pre-pandemic. And so, you know, when the pandemic hits, I'm just a little concerned about, oh my gosh, I've got 300 cases of 18 and then 600 cases of 2019 in the winery and how's this all going to work out so so luckily it's it's worked out really well so I'm going to come back to that because I'm curious about that uh, obviously dropping your first wine during a pandemic is probably not ideal but we'll come back to that in a second yeah boy that was a that was a strange few weeks there <laughs> initially uh, I'm curious about the cider aspect as well. You talked about three different kinds of pinots, three different kinds of ciders. Yeah. Tell me about the cider making, uh, if it's how it how it's similar and different to the winemaking, yeah. and, and talk about like the audience for it. I'm curious about if you're finding people who like both, or if you're finding very specific audiences for either. Yeah, for the most part, the the audiences um, there's been some overlap in clients that that love both. Um, but they do seem to be, you know, different. Certainly different. Very retail. Mm -hmm. the, the retail audience is very different um, on the retail side. Um, but uh, you know, I came uh, to wine to, to the cider making from a winemaker's perspective of sparkling wine. So really, uh, adopting all the methods that you would with uh, a champagne method, Méthode Champagnoise, and um, just not doing the step with the disgorging. Um, but we do the, the whole thing with the, uh, the bottle carbonation where you, you know, add yeast and sugar uh, to your tank and then put that in bottle. Uh, the only step we don't take, just, uh, just due to labor and affordability in the cider you know, market the way it is, there's only so much you can charge per bottle. Um, and that extra step of disgorging the yeast you know, from the bottle would, would just be one step too much. Um, at the winery, but uh, but I've I've come up with a, a a nice method that really leaves very little sediment and very little yeast. Um, so, and cider is very lightly carbonated, so you don't have to you know have a a lot of yeast in, in the bottle for the carbonation. Um, but you know it's really a style that some call uh, like an orchard based. Uh, so very similar to wine. Um, working with uh, apples in my valley uh, that friends have allowed me to pick. Uh, one uh, friend in particular, Bruce Bartlett, has a former orchard that he used to manage commercially that is completely no spray and unmanaged and I get to pick there and, and um, 
and, and those are my Liberty apples. The Gravensteins are from my property. Uh, so we do a Gravenstein Gold, Liberty Red. And as I was doing that, you know, at the, in home environment, I quickly found out that if I could add uh, rear, you know, good quality heirloom heritage cider fruit to those um, more basic, if you will, dessert fruit, uh, you, you would then get to a cider that really approached more of what you find in Normandy and Britain uh, and Wales and, and the Basque country. And so then I started exploring a little bit with Idle Acres Orchard, uh, which is in Marion County. And then now there's a new orchard in the Corvallis area on Kiger Island. Uh, two, two new orchards, uh, Jolly Farms and Wombat Flats, and um, they do a lot of organic practices as well, not 100% organic, um, but super happy with their heritage fruit. And so now, now I'm using a lot more of this traditional heritage fruit, so you get a lot more tannin, mm -hmm. uh, you get more depth of uh, flavor, uh, more length, which is really difficult to do on a cider or a sparkling wine, is to get that length. Um, uh, and, and that nice finish, um, and bright acidity, and good sharpness. So, um, and so the Gravenstein being much more like that green apple bright style, the Liberty Red, uh, a little bit more full-bodied, more red apple. Mm -hmm. uh, the Idle Acres Perfection is 100% heirloom fruit, so a lot more tannin, a lot more ageability in that wine, mm -hmm. in that cider. Uh, and this year, too, I'll be launching a fourth um, cider, which um, it's out on social media as a bit of a mystery, so I'm not going to tell exactly what it is, but it's going to be a single varietal traditional cider that I believe will be the first cider producer outside of England to make this single varietal. So Very that's cool. a little bit of a guess, but the nice. first... Uh, Six people that guess correctly get some, some prizes. So, <laughs> so I'm not going to yes. reveal it right here. Nice. So, so that kind of exploring that a little bit. Um, but I have a great distributor in Oregon right now, and the, the retail sales on that have really taken off. So you know, I'm, I'm really not trying to uh, fill the niche that so many great cider makers have already taken um, with uh, adding other fruit flavors to ciders and so-called adjuncts. Uh, so this is all traditional heritage style mm -hmm. and just trying to develop that portion of the market. There are several cider makers th that are in that camp and trying to expand that market and, and um, I'm, I'm just more than happy to, to help, ex help expand you know, that side of cider making. It's a little bit more serious cider that you would, um, that pairs well with food, that, that really can stand up to food, has more tannin, has more structure has more brightness, natural acidity uh, from some of the more uh, tannic crab apples and other bitter sharps um, mm -hmm. and sharp uh, heirloom apples that we are able to use. So, and it's really more of a passion project because um, th there's just no money in it. So <laughs> <laughs> the profits are just terrible. <laughs> The heritage fruit is very expensive, and we can't, you know, it's cider, and, and you, you, you can only charge a certain, you know, you know, eight or nine dollars per bottle uh, for a 500 milliliter bottle, and you can't go too far above that, so. In terms of, for, for me specifically, and for, I'm guessing many people who will watch this who are unfamiliar with cider making, 
Uh, how different is the process once the fruit's off the tree? Uh, is it very similar to winemaking? It's very it similar to white winemaking and sparkling wine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, the only difference, you know, uh, going to press, obviously you can't use a whole apple going into the press. So, so you just go through a process of uh, chopping that up mm -hmm. uh, through these, you know, kind of like these grinders. Mm -hmm. And then that goes into a press and you get the juice and you ferment the juice. So, so it's very, you know, at that point, you're very much into uh, the white wine mm -hmm. world and, and you ferment that dry. And then you think about your carbonation just like you would in a traditional champagne method. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, so there's a certain amount of aging you may or may not want to do, um, uh, depending on how much tannin you have in your cider. Mm -hmm. And if you want the tannins to mellow out a little bit, you might want to age that cider a little bit longer. And then right before bottling, you're going to pitch yeast and, and sugar or apple concentrate or something uh, to, to kind of reinitiate a second secondary fermentation that you'll put into the bottle to create the carbonation in the bottle. So that's very similar to champagne. Uh, obviously, champagne and uh, has a much longer process and, and uh, with you know cuvées that are meant to age mm -hmm. uh, quite quite a long time before. It, you know, for each step of the process, mm -hmm. and, and thus the expense of champagne. <laughs> it can be, a, you know, just like port, you know, it can be a multi-year and generational project of continuing these, these large uh, cuvées that are part of the program. So it'd be fun to, to have that in a cider, uh, ideal cider world, too, is, uh, but our, you know, our pHs, our natural acidity is, is not as low as in wine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's some limitations there. You know, you have a higher pH, uh, less acidity, and the, um, the, the trick there, and again, I use no sulfites, so keeping a, a no sulfite uh, cider from spoiling, from turning to vinegar, uh, boy, it's, it's uh, you really have to be on your toes because <laughs> And also the pH is pretty high, so there are a lot of lactic acid bacteria mm -hmm. that can start producing all these funky notes, um, which is kind of is okay and acceptable in the cider and beer world, you know, like a sour beer. Um, so you a little bit of it is okay, but not too much, you know. So, so kind of that farmhouse style. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. All right. So we talked earlier. We touched earlier on, on obviously starting your releasing your first wine during a pandemic. Tell me about sort of the effects the pandemic has had on your wine life, your, your cider life, and and yeah. how you sort of navigated the last few months uh, and are looking ahead at navigating the next few months. Yeah, I was I was really worried initially. I mean, um, my idea for the especially for the wine, I had already released cider, uh, so the cider was out in the marketplace. Um, but one thing I had a distributor, my distributor in Oregon was very restaurant based. And I, I, didn't, I hadn't really thought about even asking that question when I was selecting distributors and interviewing with distributors. And so they, they were immediately affected by the pandemic and the shutdowns. Uh, and so I had some new cider to come to market and they couldn't, they couldn't purchase anything. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was um, an immediate concern. Uh, and then for the wine, I was really kind of re waiting to release all three of my wines. The, the Colette, the Destem, had been released in the fall. Um, but I was waiting for the other two wines, Ariane and Mari Paul, to be ready. Um, 
in the spring and then bring all three of those wines to distributors. And my idea was to focus on a, a few out-of-state uh, distributors with um, the idea that, you know, I, I go to Tennessee to visit my parents twice a year, so let's focus there. I have a sister-in-law, dear sister-in-law in the Philly area, and so that would be a great place because I could stay with her and I know those areas a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so things like that. Um, I had eight or nine meetings with distributors in different states set up and all that in, in the month of March and a couple of wine club, you know, kind of more digital sales oriented um, wine buyers and all that fell through. Um, and so suddenly, you know, I had a friend who, who told us that, you know, the thing to do is to start doing wine Zoom tastings. And I just laughed. I just like, I was like, that's never going to happen. No one's going to want to do that. But sure enough, you know, you start to learn there were some, there were some worse places to be. I, I hadn't invested in, in on-premise. Um, cost of a tasting room or construction of a tasting room would be even worse. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't have those investments in on-premise and um, the second silver lining was I quickly found that all my former friends and colleagues from the Portland area were all working at home so suddenly home deliveries became a reality. Um, very little traffic and you could <laughs> go to Portland and make you know 15 deliveries in one day no problem. Um, and then I and then I got I, I I was exploring digital sales and and uh, posted something on a on WineBerserkers.com, which is this great um, wine internet blog uh, that a lot of enthusiasts uh, follow. And they had a kind of a pandemic uh, quarantine sale for small wineries, so I posted something there, and it caught the attention of a wine writer with the Wall Street Journal, Letty Teague. She saw that, and uh, I had kind of thrown it out there that, that, hey, this is kind of an awkward time to be launching a winery right during a pandemic, but here I am, so try my wines. And, <laughs> and, uh, and she saw that, and she, she was intrigued because she was doing a story on the effects of the pandemic on the wine industry. And uh, I got an email from her, uh, just kind of out of the blue, uh, asking for an interview. And I kind of turned to my wife, Elizabeth, I said, Letty Teague just sent me an email and wants to do an interview. Do you know who that is? And she kind of jumped out of her chair and said, Letty Teague, <laughs> she's really famous. <laughs> so we used to get Food and Wine magazine, and she was the uh, wine editor and wine writer for Food and Wine. And when we were younger, you know, it was a big uh, part of our, uh, one, of, one of the periodicals that we followed very closely. And, so she had remembered the name I had forgotten. And sure enough, um, that afternoon, um, I'm sitting at the parking lot at the UPS store doing some wine deliveries. And we do the interview in, in the car. And she, uh, she put me in the story. It was a long story. And she hadn't reviewed my wines or anything. But I was kind of the lead in the first paragraph. And uh, I just started getting inquiries and orders online from that. So it was really, really great. Um, uh, so, so, you know, for a young winery, I quickly, I now have a, an email list of 400 folks and I've had over 100 uh, folks have ordered uh, online through our store, online sales. Um, so it's been great. And, and some of those folks, um, you know, enthusiasts, you know, they, they, they read that and they were also wine berserker um, enthusiasts. 
and they they were also ambassadors for my brand. Mm -hmm. um, they were used to hosting friends for wine tastings, and and so I got I got several calls from people like that who and you know I I didn't even have to organize it. They organized the Zoom tastings with all their friends. Um, and those would, so we, we would ship like six bottles and share that with six couples. Um, and then they would all have it and then they would all order after the Zoom tasting. So it just kind of had several people, I had four people like that who organized these. Uh, the largest one, I think we had 20 different couples. <laughs> on, and each of those couples had ordered three, three, all three wines. And so we talked through all three and then the resulting sales from that and just the networking. Um, just it was it was just amazing. So and then and then with the home deliveries, um, that really made up for my lack of uh, distribution in the retail space. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm really uh, you know back to focusing. I've, I've got a new distributor for the cider and the wine, um, and we're now in the retail space in four or five different spots. But it's really hard in Oregon to. <laughs> To get on the shelf, there's a lot of competition for Pinot Noir, and I certainly understand mm -hmm. that. Um, but it's been great. I've been selected as a partner winery with the Oregon Wine Lab in Eugene. Oh, very cool. And that's really, really nice. Um, Mark, uh, the, the winery, the host winery is called William Rose, mm -hmm. and I've always really enjoyed their their wines. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly in Corvallis, they're very. Um, uh, very easy to find William Rose wine. So mm -hmm. I, I had known about them and was very interested in joining their cooperative. Uh, and so they, they invite uh, seven or eight other wineries to be part of the, the lab, stands for Local Arts and Brands. Mm -hmm. And so they have a, a really nice wine lounge in Eugene uh, with a food truck outside and plenty of outdoor seating. And so they they uh, they help sell my cider and my wine uh, at the location, and then also through their wine club. Mm. So so it's been great. Um, you know they've they've put in very large orders, and uh, so I can suddenly now have a, a a really nice presence in in the Eugene area as as well as the Mid Valley, Corvallis, and Portland. Um, so so you know the that's been. Just uh, really nice, and uh, so you know, next steps are to find more dis distribution in other states, mm -hmm. and keep growing that, and uh, and more, you know, in, in terms of digital sales, you know, I think I think as winemakers uh, and wine owner, you know, winery owners, um, using this kind of pandemic. Uh, uh, I think a lot of folks really stepped up in terms of building better relationships with mm -hmm. clients through uh, Zoom or other communications. Mm -hmm. um, you know, offering your your clients you know more uh, accessibility to to um, just experiences with the winemakers, mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, discounting, and you're seeing more like free shipping. Um, and I think that's making wines, our, our wines, hopefully, you know, premium wines uh, more affordable, mm -hmm. uh, maybe without the additional shipping cost. And uh, we just need to learn to absorb that. And, and you know, you, you would absorb those costs anyway through distribution channels, mm -hmm. the three-tiered system, mm -hmm. with the distributor getting, you know, 30% and the retail getting 30%. Uh, and so, you know, 
you can just look at all those trade-offs and why not build your email list and your direct sales to consumers uh, as best you can, mm -hmm. you know, through this. Um, and so I think, you know, it seems like uh, the statistics are there, direct to consumer sales are up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Helping make up the loss for on-premise sales, which has been, been great, mm -hmm. so. The, the, yeah. the moral of the story is people are gonna buy wine as long as they possibly can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any way they possibly can. And I've, I have so many uh, <laughs> clients and friends who have told me that they have a little bit more money now to, to maybe get into that more premium category. Mm -hmm. Uh, since they're 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 not eating out, they're not taking out state vacations. Those who still have employment mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and aren't suffering, you know, loss of income, um, they are willing to try and have a little bit of money to, to, to you know, extra income to try, a, you know, a, maybe a better brand and and maybe see the difference between the value, mm -hmm. Pinot Noirs that are under twenty and made in a larger, you know. They're just not going to have the kind of complexity that that we as small producers can can help provide, you know, in a in a smaller setting and, and more care and management, mm -hmm. longer elevage or longer barrel mm -hmm. aging of your wines, mm -hmm. which really help concentrate the, the flavors, you know. So the barrel barrel is such an ideal vessel for winemaking um, because it it's permeable, right? So there's an air exchange. Um, and the longer you keep your red wine in barrel, the more water evaporation. So, you know, wine is mostly 80% water or more. Um, and the less, the less water you have, the more evaporation, the more concentrated uh, the flavors and mm -hmm. the profile of that wine becomes. And that's the real secret of aging. Uh, the other thing of, of aging your wines a little bit longer uh, is if you do have uh, a tannin profile that's maybe a little harsh, those tannins start to smooth out with that that micro oxygenation over time, and they tend to um, to smooth out over time. Mm -hmm. So you get that that double benefit of aging your wines in barrel, um, and so that you know I think that's part of what distinguishes us uh, as premium winemakers. Um, the other big, big thing is uh, just having smaller fermentation mm -hmm. uh, vessels. Uh, you get into a very large fermentation tank and it's uh, quickly, it's real easy for the temperatures of that fermentation tank to spike, uh, almost out of control, um, but you know, get up into the 90s um, pretty easily and then you start to, a lot of the, um, the flavors and esters and mm -hmm and a lot of the flavor compounds can volatilize, can basically evaporate from your wine and escape the wine. It de definitely changes the character of the wine. We've seen a lot of wine trials that, um, you know, at Symposium, they have wine trials at the Oregon Symposium every year, and you can, you can try it. One year they did, I think it was Adelsheim or, or a different producer, had tried, you know, different temperatures, and, and they, they only had like a four degree Fahrenheit temperature mm -hmm. in their fermentations, uh, the exact same grapes and same process, and they tasted differently. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's, it's just a reminder of fermentation temperatures mm -hmm. being pretty important. And then the other thing in, in large-scale winemaking, um, you know, it's like you kind of scratch your head, well, how did you process 100 tons of fruit in six hours, well, you, you, you just don't sort the fruit. You know, it goes straight into the fermentation uh, or the destemmer 
and into fermentation um, without uh, sorting. So that's, that's the other big quality aspect of a small producer. Uh, we take the time, all, all the small quality producers take the time to sort fruit. Um, so, so you don't get any leaves that can cause some of that green kind of pyrazine flavors and vegetal or, um, or any uh, mildew or, or rot in the bunches, mm -hmm. depending. And it can be especially important on difficult vintage years, <laughs> uh, such as 2019, where uh, we did have a lot of rain and cold weather at the end there. So sorting fruit was, was really imperative. Mm -hmm. so. so with that said, what do, you, what do you see as you look ahead for your label? What do you see uh, in terms of growth, in terms of yeah. uh, expansion, in terms of uh, variety? Uh, as you look ahead, what do you kind of hope to be five, ten years down the road? Well, you know, I just take it one year at a time, but um, I, I initially thought I would love to do the three styles from different um, uh, vineyards. Um, but now I'm, I'm, I'm more focused on uh, trying to express the Cortel Rose Vineyard as fully as I can and try to get all six clones represented as the vineyard um, owner had the vision of and sort of, sort of like an estate vineyard you know if you plant six clones is because you really have this idea that using all six Pinot Noir clones or varietals if you will in your wine are going to make a, a greater wine a, a more you know balanced wine and certainly more complex wine so I would love to be able to do all three styles with all six clones, and I'm, I'm still pretty far away from that in terms of volume. So I think I'll just keep plugging away at, at that for the short term. And in the long term, you know, would love to also incorporate some white wines and rosés. Um, and so we do have plans for rosé and even a port, a Pinot Noir port uh, this year, so to get that started. Um, and uh, for the cider, um, probably we'll try, try to keep that to just to Oregon for now and keep it small and manageable <laughs> because um, in, in, unless I find a, a, a partner who, who really wants to take on much larger volumes and multi-state mm -hmm. uh, branding, um, um, that, that's a whole different it just seems like that's a whole different world, you know, once you get into those volumes. And so we'll, we'll keep that small for now. But, um, but so small for me, there's so many definitions of that, is about <laughs> 600 cases in the wine world and about same, actually, six or 700 or 800 cases for the cider, mm -hmm. plus kegs, you know, all the kegs too, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Do you see that number growing significantly as you go ahead, as you're as you're kind of trying to trying different styles? Yeah, you know, maybe maybe incrementally mm -hmm. uh, growing, um, but there's certainly no business plan right now that we're going to double every year. You know, that kind of thing. I am I have been doubling. You know, my first few years, so so I, maybe that's not going to. Maybe I'll continue to do that, but it's. Uh, it, take, it takes a little financial fortitude coming into this business, um, especially the wine where you, you, know, you buy your grapes and then in year three you start selling your wine. 
So it takes a little bit of, um, you know, a little tolerance for risk and, and some financial resources that um, are certainly there. In, in cider, it's, you know, it's much more quick to market, so you, you, you do feel like there's a little bit less risk there and mm -hmm. you get maybe more direct feedback, you know, from the marketplace uh, and ability to, to grow and meet that demand, mm -hmm. you know, so. It's much more acceptable in the cider and beer, beer worlds to be um, uh, brewing or cider making all year long using frozen juice or, but you know, I'm trying to avoid that too uh, and use fresh juice um, so to keep the quality as high as possible. Um, but when you see these real like super large cideries that are producing uh, very large quantities um, you know, they're, they're buying a lot of frozen juice coming from Hood River, mm -hmm. potentially, and, and Eastern Washington as a base, mm -hmm. you know, for their cider, mm -hmm. and then adding, you know, something to it that makes it interesting, you know, be it uh, a fruit flavor, uh, hops, or uh, some heirloom fruit, or something to, to bring some interest to, to that cider. So, so two different, very, two, you yeah, have very different model there once you start to scale up mm -hmm. your cider making. Mm -hmm. so. so tell me about the, your kind of experience in the Oregon wine industry, what, it, what, it, what your kind of first impressions of the industry were and your kind of initial experience and, yeah. and what your impressions are now, what's, what's changed since you've been a part of it? Well certainly coming to Oregon as a, just a wine enthusiast as, and, and someone who just enjoyed wines, um, I guess the thing I've really noticed in the last 25 years is just the, you know, the, the really nice um, uh, blossoming of tasting rooms and hospitality. Um, when we first moved to Oregon, even in 1995, you know, being able to visit wineries um, was a really big deal for, op like, during the open house weekends mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. Memorial Day and then some Labor Day, but certainly Thanksgiving, and we would always put that down on our calendar. And the or you know the Oregonian would do a big feature with pullouts and like these wineries are only open twice a year, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so th that's been I think just I think that's just been great for the industry to see uh, more wineries willing to invest in on-premise uh, hospitality and and giving uh, out-of-state but also in-state. Um, clients more ability to, to really see that story and connect with the vineyard that might be there. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of urban uh, tasting rooms as well, so not necessarily a vineyard experience. Mm -hmm. But um, I feel like the, the quality has um, done nothing but improve along the way. Um, as uh, you know, people have learned more uh, and certainly there's been a lot of research in um, you know, everything from controlling Brett in the winery to um, uh, better equipment to, um, you know, using uh, just, you know, small innovations that occurred along the way, but very significant innovations, uh, being able to rack or move your wine from a barrel to a tank, um, not using a pump, which might introduce some oxidation mm -hmm. and, and oxygen, but using a, a kind of a nitrogen pump, if you will, like uh, just pumping that wine through with nitrogen pressure so that there's no oxidation that occurs uh, 
during something that's called racking, or the transfer of wine you know, from barrel to, to another barrel, or barrel to a tank, uh, depending on where you are in the process. You know, just uh, improvements in techniques and mm -hmm. equipment, mm -hmm. uh, better presses now, and better destemmers that, that people have. Um, the, the advent of uh, also much improved uh, filtering technology that um, called something called cross-flow uh, filtration, which doesn't, um, it's not like a dead-end pressure type filtration through media, but it's a much more uh, soft and, and natural filtration process um, that's a lot less harsh on the wine. Uh, and cert so can preserve the flavors a lot more, and, and especially in white wine. You know, most white wines are uh, sterile filtered, so that you you don't um, uh, you, you know get uh, you know malolactic fermentation in your bottle and, and get fizzy. Sometimes you get a little fizzy white wine, and there's something going on in there, a little bacteria <laughs> producing bubbles, which can be totally fine and enjoyable. But um, so. You know, all of those things have added up to, um, uh, you know, great improvements in, in, in maintaining and improving quality in, in wine. Um, and I think certainly Oregon has, um, as a wine region, has really stayed uh, as a larger percentage of small wineries compared to other wine regions in the world, maybe, uh, with some notable exceptions, obviously, in Napa and other places. Um, and, and that, I think, really helps preserve quality as well for some of the reasons we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. What about as you look ahead? What is Oregon, the Oregon wine industry going to look like in the, in the coming years? I, it just seems really bright. You know, I, one of the reasons I felt really confident in just launching into this uh, industry um, is the position that Oregon, uh, Willamette Valley in particular, but other Oregon wine viticulture areas uh, are just uh, you know well received and, and well known for their quality and their value uh, to quality um, and you know it, it, it might seem sometimes you know we see these like premium pricing above thirty dollars but compared to so many other premium wine uh, areas in California and Europe uh, still you know I think the value is is really there for in wines and and Oregon wines continue to um, outperform in most wine review, um, third-party review, mm -hmm. you know, 90 plus scores as a higher percentage of the total compared to other wine regions. Um, and so just, uh, you know, I think the continued quality um, is, is really hopeful for me. I, I hope that that will continue to be the future. It certainly is the trend. Um, what we're known for, and it certainly seems like uh, we're 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 you know continuing on in that direction. Mm -hmm. And if you if you if you just drive around some of our viticulture areas that are so large, and there's still just tons of room for more vineyards. Um, just yeah. I, I really focus on the Yola Amity Hills. I really love that viticulture area where my vineyard um, sourcing is, and. Uh, just that elevation and the cool ocean breezes that come through the Van Duzer corridor. Um, but if you look around, you look at the hill, and there's still all these, you know, even Christmas tree farms and orchards, and there's lots of other potential vineyard sites. So um, I just don't see why that wouldn't just continue. 
um, uh, you know, to, to, to blossom and grow with, uh, uh, especially as the industry is, uh, continues to do well. And, um, and I feel like we're still kind of in a, you know, relatively cool environment um, compared to some other regions and with climate change and the warming uh, and shorter vintage times, uh, Oregon is still pretty well positioned to, for really, you know, quality, cool climate mm -hmm. grapes. Mm -hmm. um, so we're still in a, a nice sweet spot um, uh, for the next few decades, hopefully. Um, but hopefully climate change, you know, to me that's a real concern is climate change and, and the potential on many things in the world, but including including wine mm -hmm. uh, quality as well. But mm -hmm. uh, certainly fish and wildlife habitat and uh, uh, environmental justice and how climate change affects, um, you know, just the, those heat islands in the city where, you know, a lot of disadvantaged folks um, don't have the opportunity to have air conditioning or the ability to escape when the heat waves do come, um, and all the other things that can happen. Mm -hmm. So, so it's a big concern. So, yeah. You talked earlier about um, how you would recommend anyone who was getting into the industry working in a tasting room, especially for a couple of years, kind of get yeah. that, kind of get that that aspect of the industry. Tell me what other words of wisdom you'd have for someone who wanted to join Oregon wine industry. Well, you know, just um, just. Just follow your passion and, and just get started. You know, you'll find uh, doors that will open for you if if uh, if you have that in your heart and in your passion. Um, and then, you know, the most difficult thing is is if, are, are the financial resources. I mean, there's just no getting around it. It's, it can be really hard. And uh, but you know, start with a barrel or two and and find a friend. You know, if you do work at a cellar. You're going to meet winemakers, and they will, they could easily increase their purchase. It might be hard for you to contract directly, but certainly a winemaker friend or a colleague or a boss would be able to increase their order by a fraction and, and sell you those grapes that you could make at home or even on site. Hopefully, that person would be willing to, to mentor you. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I have some friends, you know, when I think back on my Chemeketa experience, two years of uh, studies there, um, I, I personally know th five different classmates, uh, all younger and who, who didn't have a whole lot of financial resources. You know, they kind of kept their day jobs and got started and they all started wineries. Um, they started small and they're doing really well, you know, and some have really, really taken off. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, uh, it's there if you can pursue it. You know, maybe keep your desk job, keep your day job for a while. You do have to figure out the financial side of it. Um, mm -hmm. But you can get started small and, 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 and learn as you go and, and uh, sell those wines to your, you know, try to make them commercially so you can sell them, you know, as best you can. So you get some feedback mm -hmm. too in terms of um, it's always it's always easy to get compliments on free wine you're giving people they're gonna <laughs> love it but are they willing to like pay twenty dollars for it or, or whatever so 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 yeah just uh, yeah do try to take the plunge if you can mm -hmm. yep but it can be hard you know find the time and find the financial resources there's no doubt it can be difficult so. 
All right, all the questions that I have for you today, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover? Well, uh, two things. Uh, I mentioned climate change, so yes. something that's very important to me was to uh, set the company up as uh, we, we are a 1% for the planet oh, member uh, winery. Um, uh, similar to several others in the valley, and I hope that's something that will continue to, to grow. Um, so 1% of all of our sales for cider and wine uh, are donated to environmental causes. And one of the things that I, I really strongly support is um, we buy carbon offsets. Um, very easy to do. There's a, a super local uh, art offset company uh, uh, in, the, in the Northwest called the Bonneville Environmental Fund. Super easy as an individual or as a, as a business. Uh, even if you don't know exactly what your climate footprint is, don't let that stop you. You know, you can, you can go out and buy 10 tons or we buy 22 tons a year for the business. Mm -hmm. And on the home side, we have solar panels and are, are pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well set on, on electricity use. So we just have the car and air travel to worry about. Mm -hmm. um, and then on the business side, yeah, I, I haven't figured out my whole carbon footprint but we buy 22 tons and we'll try to increase that every year. Uh, so it's certainly, you know, um, an effort, you know, to get to that uh, net zero. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, uh, you know, just uh, social justice and uh, diversity in the wine world is certainly um, uh, lacking uh, still. And so uh, whatever we can all do as uh, owners and winemakers and colleagues, uh, to, to invite and help our, our uh, black and brown colleagues. And I try to do that as much as I can, and I, I try to offer free mentorship, uh, as well as for gender, uh, more gender equality and, and gender nonconforming, uh, all of that. So it would be great to see more diversity, uh, you know, both uh, on the making and ownership side and also on the client side and have more you know, be, be more open to more audiences, and, and um, I think that's really important to, to the winemaking. So it's it's great to see more attention to that um, in the past few months, um, as the nation has turned their turned our attention to that as a larger issue. Uh, it seems like it has come up in 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 the wine world as well, which is really nice to see. So really appreciate that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, obviously. Yeah, thanks. Um, thank you so much for that and for everything, for your interview today, for joining us. Thanks, Rich. Yeah. Uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.